When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Buff Nation, voice of the bus, Mark Johnson here. Welcome to the Buffs Insider, our podcast here at the University of Colorado. It was June 23rd, 1972. Then-President Richard Nixon signed into law groundbreaking legislation, Title IX, altered the landscape of college athletics for the better. And here to talk about it with us today, legendary coach Seal Berry. She doesn't need an introduction, but she certainly deserves one. She's in every Hall of Fame you can possibly think of. I was joking with her, all but the future farmers of America. But uh, coach, it's great to have you here. It's great to see you. Yeah, man. Well, Title IX, you think 50 years has gone by. Now, if I am correct in this, you would have been about a senior in high school, I think, when this was signed into law. I was. You were yes. on your way to Kentucky to play college basketball. So you saw this from its infancy as a player into being a coach, and not that many years later to administrator. When I say Title IX to you, what do you think about it? Well, it was interesting, you know, as a high school athlete, it, when it was passed, or even a college athlete, we didn't know anything about Title IX. <laughs> Nothing. I started working in the University of Kentucky Women's Athletic Department, which was in the intramurals and rec center. That's where women's athletics was. And the women's AD at that point said, there's this law, uh, Title IX, which, you know, you're 20 years old. It, it didn't really mean it. I was like, yeah, well, somebody else can worry about that. <laughs> right. I've got practice or whatever. But it passed and uh, yeah, it was kind of went right by us. Yeah, at the time. He didn't realize the magnitude of what was happening. Not not in the least until, well, as I said, I was a student worker. Right. And uh, one of my jobs was to open the mail. You know, student worker, open the pile of mail, <laughs> here it comes. And I started opening these job descriptions for head women's basketball coach. Mm. And I'm like, wow, there is no such thing. There are no teams. Right. I mean, but, uh, Universities across the country were hiring their very first women's you basketball, full-time women's basketball coach. So here I was an accounting major, and I was like, I'm not going to be a CPA. I'm going to go be a basketball coach. This is great. That's when it really started to resonate. Yeah, I, I would think at that point in time, even though you're a little bit naive to what's going on, all of a sudden the world begins to open up a little bit. Oh, right? ab The opportunities oh, were out there. And it opened. It was a floodgate. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the first superstar basketball player was Annie Drysdale, yeah. Annie Myers, yeah. UCLA. She led UCLA to the 1978 uh, national championship. And then, 
married Don Drysdale and got a lot of publicity nationally. She was the first female, I think, along with Carol Blaszczowski, but on the West Coast. But uh, yeah, it was a floodgates. Yeah. yeah. So, and you touched on it, talking about, you know, athletics for the women being in the intramurals department. Yeah. Kind of give folks that, that maybe don't have, know that history, what it was like. Women's athletics was club sports? Is that how you describe it? Women's athletics was club sports. Yeah. And even and prior to the 70s, they had play days, which, you know, that the, uh, lemonade and cookies after the game. You played the local school. For example, uh, CU would probably play uh, Metro mm -hmm. or maybe Regis. But, you know, where you could drive down, play the game, have lemonade and cookies after, and socialize. It was much more social. Uh, by the time I got to college, we were past the play days, but it would be a typical situation where you'd have two vans, put 10 people in each van, mm -hmm. four to a room, uh, and so you'll bring $20 for the weekend for your meals. Uh, we'll stop at McDonald's. You know, so the university did not supply food uniforms. Right. Uniforms were totally haphazard. Yeah, I mean, people would sew their numbers on a <laughs> a blouse and wear it. <laughs> it. It was out of control. It was a lot of fun, uh, but we were competitive, and it was interesting. Mark, I lived through the time where we were kind of paupers the first two years, and then. All of a sudden, we had a charter flight, charter buses. My junior, yeah. senior year, I got a scholarship. It was like, whoa, this is nice. I like it. So you then, and, and Sue went to the University of Kentucky. It's where you played college basketball. So you saw major changes then over the course of your four years in Lexington. Huge changes. I mean, I went to school with Goose Givens, Jack Givens, James Lee, Rick Roby, you know. Uh, so they were in the, you know, the big gym. Right. We, we were over in the rec center right. playing, and they roll out the bleachers, you know, 20 minutes before the game, a couple student workers would roll out to bleachers. Yeah, I watched us go from have not to have and to, you know, just tip of the iceberg starting to be treated like the, the guys team. And, you know, we all knew there was a heck of a lot to get done, but we we're super grateful, super appreciative, anything we got, you know, oh, we don't have to pay our meals this trip. <laughs> Uh, my entire uh, collegiate career, there was always four to a room. So it was hard to sleep. It was hard to get your rest. Um, it wasn't until well into my career here at Colorado. Even when I first started coaching, there were four women to a room. Uh, but we were, it, it, every year you got more sure. as opposed to less. So the whole culture uh, of coaches in my era were super appreciative. Oh, wow, that's great. This year we get that. Yeah. You know, but there was somebody above us uh, helping us out. So there was gratitude, but was there an idea, well, this is the first step in a process? I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and I, when I say there's gratitude, the largest, the large percentage of women were grateful. But there were probably a small percentage of women that were resentful, full mm -hmm. of resentment that it had taken so long, we're not getting enough. Right. Um, I, I absolutely saw the future. Yeah. It was like... Uh, I can remember the very first televised game, uh, women's game. So you knew it wasn't going to stop at one game. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tennessee was starting to uh, replace Immaculata, Old Dominion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I knew the future was in a large school, not a Delta State, Immaculata, Old Dominion, uh, Cheney State. Those were the late 70s teams. 
that the larger schools with the larger football programs, facilities, budgets, were going to be the future of women's sports. You could see that. I mean, if you had your eyes open and you were yeah. watching. So it wasn't that many years and you were coaching by what, 1978, 79 or so? Yeah, right correct? Uh-huh. Around that or you became a coach. Was there another leap by the time you became a coach? You think, boy, this thing is really picking up steam and it's, it's starting to advance and progress? Yes, when I when I took the coaching job, and this is uh, you know a fact I'd, I'd kind of like to share, most of the coaches, I was 23 when I was offered the job. By the wow. time I signed the contract, I was 24. <laughs> I was one of the youngest uh, head coaches in the nation at that point. Um, the big fear for me is my players are my age. Right. They're in my peer group. And how how am I going <laughs> to be an authority figure yeah. to them at such a young age? How, how do I separate? Because I knew you had to have that. I'd been around male sports enough. And having gone to uh, Catholic schools in Louisville, we had sports. So, you know, I had, I had very good... Uh, role model of what a coach should look like with their mm -hmm. team. But here I was their age. Um, but, you know, then I was thrust into this role of expectation. Uh, uh, thankfully, no one put uh, that much pressure on me to go in and pound my fist on the table and ask for things. Here's what I thought. If you win, <laughs> They will give you more stuff. There you go. You build, they will you know, come, right? It's a field yeah, of dreams philosophy. Kind of yeah. field of, I thought, we win, we'll get stuff. Yeah. And so that was the way I did it. It was a lot more fun for yeah. everybody. Do you think, whether well, there are times, and every circumstance is going to be different. So depending on, I suppose, what institution, maybe what part of the country you're at, did you find on one side you've got the gratefulness of all the women who are getting the opportunity now? Did you notice there was resentment on the other side? Well, uh, there was a, a huge amount of resentment. Uh, the NCAA fought Title IX. Before it actually was implemented, there was a three-year period where it, it kind of floundered around in the courts because okay. uh, the NCAA was like, you know, we're not ready to take on women yet. You know, they're going to be a drain on the budget. And, you know, that was probably so. Yeah, you got to hire a coach. You got to have like five more teams. You got to yep. balance out football. I mean, when you look at all the laundry list of Title IX, of all the things that you have to do for yep. it, it, it's... It's going to be a little costly. Well, it's everything times two. It, absolutely. Oh, right. and, and, you know, so you, it was based on fear. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there was a kind of a antagonistic viewpoint. The hardest part would be being the first one to come into the training room. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one to expect that, okay, laundry is going to be done for our... <laughs> Athlete, you know, the equipment guy, you know, the head trainer, they were like, we don't have staff. Yeah. We don't have time. We don't have the budget. So it was left up to them really to figure out how to make it work. And a lot of times they weren't given the resources. So there was an underlying resentment. Yeah. For a long time, you know, there's still some leftover of that, but you can't really, fo I didn't ever focus on. Yeah. At, at all. Well, there, there's going to be the effects of, of anything you do that you think about, right? The, the obvious things. And then there are the maybe things that you don't consider when you're going to this. And, and you kind of touched on, okay, there's training room time, there's a laundry, practice court time. Oh. I mean, it becomes, I don't, and, and that to this day is still a, a back and forth between coaches, no matter where you're at. So there are a lot of unintended issues that, that 
everybody had to deal with at that point in time for a number of years. You know, that's one of the things that attracted me to see you. Mm-hmm. A guy named John Berianic, who oh, was yes. a long time business manager, you know, uh, associate AD. I interviewed out here in April of 83, came out and John told me right away, this, this was so refreshing. He said, now the way we work it is, you know, the men are gonna go one to 3.30 uh, in the fall and the women will go 3.30 to 5.30. Okay. Then you go, back then we didn't have training table for women's bath. Then you go to the residence halls for meals. And in the spring semester, we flip-flop. All right. Then the women go first and the, this was 1983. Not a lot of people do that. Five, four years later, I interviewed someplace Right. And I won't, I won't share. Well, here I thought she was going to break some news. Oh, right no, there. no breaking about. news. But <laughs> during the the meeting with the athletic director, the men were practicing two to six at this institution, and I said, okay, so the women, how about if the women go twelve to two thirty? I needed two and a half hours. That's yeah. what I'd gotten here, and uh, the men maybe they could go two thirty to six thirty because they had training table. He goes, no, can't do that. And I said, why not? He goes, because the staff plays noon ball. (laughs) (laughs) The guys play noon ball. And I'm like, I'm going back west. So the noon ball was more important than than your varsity sport. Than the varsity sport, which told me a whole lot. So that was 88 I interviewed at this place. And so there was still a lot that noon ball is going to be important, more important division one team. Um, And so... And you could get away with that. Sure. And they did. And yeah. it took them 20 years before they could ever get a basketball coach to stay. But, yeah. You know, you mentioned football being in the equation. That, that's been kind of the one, I don't want to say albatross, but, it, but it, yeah. it's kind of the fly in the ointment, isn't it, with college athletics when we talk title line? Because it does throw the numbers a little bit out of whack, doesn't it? It does. And, and that has to do with equity, gender equity, uh, mandates that for your full-ride scholarships, which right. football has 85, but back then, I want to say they had 105. Right. They had more than 85. That you have to balance out your dollars with women's sports. So if you have men's and women's golf team, okay, have 10 and 10. Mm-hmm. If you have men's and women's basketball, have 14 and 14. Right. You know, so on and so forth down the line. But then you get the football. But then you get becomes, football and you yeah. go, how do you, how do you do that? So you add lacrosse, you add volleyball, you add soccer, you keep adding women's sports. And, and, and in a way it, it's frustrating because those sports became, became part-time scholarships. Right. Because you could count their participants, 35 soccer players, you could count them against the football players. But the women were getting 10% aid, 25% aid, sure. 50% aid. So I, I, the accountant in me, comes out and said, we've got to figure out a better way to do that. My feeling is everybody should be on a full ride. Everybody. If you're, if you're on a team, you right. run cross country for us and you run 65 miles a week, you get a full ride. Right. You play soccer for us. They all should. Yeah. They yeah. should figure that out. Have they... In terms of because of the economics of football and the way it generates, has there been a tendency, do you think, to maybe not try to make everything totally equal because it is such a a monster financial generating machine? Right. And essentially, that's a television contract. Yes. You know, you're getting those TV contracts that want football. Correct. And that's a lot of money. Uh, I, 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 you know, it's hard when you talk operating budget for football. 
of course it's going to be different. Um, but uh, it's, it's uh, part of the equation that needs to be hammered out, as yeah. best I can say. As you sit here today, now 50 years into this, from here you're a high school senior, and now you're sitting here looking at this anniversary of, of Title IX. Are, are you amazed? Or are you looking at it and say, well, it's, it's what I expected? Uh, it, it hasn't quite met what I expected? How do you look at it? You know, the big fear, Mark, there was a, a, a governing body called the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. And that was in, uh, that was the governing body. They did not want recruiting. Mm -hmm. They didn't want scholarships. They didn't want these women, and I coached in the AIAW, did not want the pitfalls of men's sports. <laughs> the okay. cheating, the yeah. scandals, the whatever negative side. Let's of, take the good but not the bad part of it. Yeah. They wanted the good but not the bad. So there was a big fight in 78, 79 when the NCAA finally was like, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's bring them on. Uh, we're going to host championships. In uh, 82, they started hosting championships. So now the women came on board. I, I, I think everything that's happened has been wonderful. Right. Uh, professional sports for women. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. It's what every little girl dreams of. Yeah. If, if boys dream of it, being playing in the NFL or playing in the NBA, girls dream of, who wouldn't want a lifetime of sports? Without question. What a, what a great way. But some of the negative side, the negative culture, or the cottage industries that are, are really all about money and infiltrate the, the purity of yep. collegiate sports, that's the side, if I have discussions with my peers, we all kind of like the good old days. Yeah. We all kind of like the late 70s and the 80s. Everybody loves the 80s, where we were getting things, but we were still amateur and we were still, we like to say we were educators. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's as much about education as it used to be. It's year round, I don't like, I don't like that collegiate athletes participate they don't participate year round they practice year round they lift year round they're here in the summer year round i hate, i hate that think yeah. think they should be off you know it, it what you're talking about in terms of what you mentioned professional sports so title nine looks to level the playing service if you will for men and women in college athletics and it has spawned all you're talking about. It spawned the WNBA. It yeah. spawned the women's national soccer team, which you know has made such phenomenal impacts in our society. It yeah. really is amazing to see kind of the fruit of the tree, isn't it? Well, in addition to that, you know, the law didn't really mention sports, and it didn't really mention women. It just said if you programming needs to be available. So a female in 1980 now had a good chance of going to law school, right? Or a good good chance of going to med school. Or you walk on a airplane, you might see a female pilot now. Mm -hmm. I mean, a judge, it, it, you know, you know, we're just waiting for the next female who will be president of the United States. I think what the law did was not just open up opportunity in athletics. That's what got all the attention. Right. But what it did was open up every single one of these buildings on this campus to say, you have an equal chance of getting into that engineering school over there, regardless of whether you're a male or a female. And it did the same thing for a male. If, if, if you know, you had a long line of violinists who played in the orchestra and they were all women, right. and the leader said, well, you, you can't play the violin, we only have girls, you know. <laughs> that, that's sort of, that's the idea of Title IX that Gender isn't in the equation of who gets an opportunity to, to try.
to try. It, it is always amazing, though, and, and, and in hindsight, our vision is always much greater, of course. You know, it was interesting listening to you talk about when it happened, when it was signed by Richard Nixon in 1972. Not even sure what this is all about. You yeah. become a coach. Well, great. You know, we're getting some more opportunities. Yeah. And now you look back at it 50 years later and you understand the pivot that our culture made at that point in time. Absolutely. And when you, right, we were there. It was not front page news, you know, the Title IX. It wasn't on the sports page. I can guarantee you that because I read the sports page. Title IX being passive, it might have been way back on the, you know, fifth page that this law passed. But I don't think, to be honest with you, Mark, in 1972, 73, people did not believe that it would ever be implemented. Right. I think there was a general feeling that, yeah, right, you're going to have girls. I mean, the only women in athletics departments were secretaries. Now picture that. Yeah. Secretaries, that is it. I mean, look at it now. Right. I mean, there are a lot of women ADs, but you walk down the hallways of the, of the Champions Center, and it's it's probably a 50-50 split, men and women, right now. Right. Totally so, changed. really, in reality, you know, it's like saying, "Oh yeah, we'll walk on the moon someday," or you know, "We'll do." Uh, you know, I I don't think the majority of athletes, people, really thought, eh, "We're gonna we're gonna bust down this wall," but save for a few women that really led the charge. Yeah. yeah. And here we are today, totally different world, athletically speaking, 50 years celebrating the uh, anniversary of the signing into law of Title IX. You know, you touched on where athletics has gone, and, and, and I've got her captive right now so I can ask you these questions. You spent so many years as a coach, obviously, administrator. The game is changing dramatically. When, when you kind of read now about what's going on with NIL and with the transfer portal, you know, the whole NIL thing, I wonder how that impacts the locker room and team chemistry. Amen. You know, and, and that's from my background in the uh, sports where once one student will get 10% financial aid and another student gets 80% financial aid. We see that in a lot of our softballs mm -hmm. that way, soccer's that way, uh, cross-country track. You know, and it causes a tension sure in the does. locker room. You know, like, I'm starting, I'm on 10%. You're sitting on the bench and you've, you know, put on 20 pounds and didn't do anything over the summer <laughs> and you're on 90% aid. You know, people don't like that, that you're getting paid more than me yep. and I'm working harder. Yep. And uh, so, especially if it's used to incentivize someone to come to school, which it is. It certainly you, is. You know, and, and there was all this rhetoric that, oh, it won't be used to recruit. Well, of course it's going to be used to re recruit. Absolutely. People are dangling that carrot. If you come here, I'm going to give you this much money, and you're not going to have to do anything for it, right. except show up and, and you know, give us your name. And you know that doesn't win games on the field. You give a 17-year-old a lot of money, yep. and you want that 17-year-old to work hard and pay attention to you, not the guy that gave you the money. Amen. You know, so, and you have agents involved, so. I, I think it was a huge, huge mistake, and I know a lot, a lot of people were advocating. I know, I know that coaches make a lot of money, athletic directors make a lot of money, referees make a lot of money, and maybe we should have fixed that. Fix that is who's who's getting the piece of the pie, um, or done a better job explaining to student athletes. You, you know, here are some of the things that we're using this money for. I think most 19-year-olds. Um, they love the gear. Yeah. They love the food. Right. They love the road trips. They love the charter flights. Mm -hmm. They love their teammates. They, 
I, I don't think they were necessarily leading the charge on this. Yes. Some people who were not in the locker room were leading the charge, and that's that's what's sad to me. Well, there's an old line I heard that I've, I've loved for years, and it, it says that first you learn, then you drop the L, okay? So you learn, then you earn, right? And that, that's kind of the process. And we've kind of muddied the waters and dirtied the waters here with college athletics a little bit. Well, and you put a lot more pressure on a 19-year-old kid. Hmm. Now you're telling this kid they're supposed to earn money. Well, you used to tell the kid you're supposed to lift weights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to run, lift weights, uh, work our camp in the summer, and have a little off time. Now you're, now they're looking at how many likes they have in social media, and are they an influencer? And and you're putting things into their head that they are supposed to be right now, instead of the good old days when we went to college and we come over here and you know where's the next party or or whatever. <laughs> you know I don't think they get to be college kids. I mean, who really was expected to earn twenty-five, thirty thousand when they went to college? Right. Who was expected to? I mean, you're not you're not expected to that. You're supposed to get an education, and and that's gotten lost in the shuffle. Well, and what you talk about right there, the the, the education, and and we know you know Rick George here at the University of Colorado preaches all the time. Uh, you know, make sure our student athletes have a world class education and experience. Yeah. And you know as well as anybody here, all that goes into that from the mental health to the nutrition to the medical care to the tutoring it's enormous what a young man or young woman experiences here at the university of colorado and, and there's great value in all that on top of the fact you're getting this institution behind us a world-class education yeah and you mentioned mental health some of these mental health issues have to do with time mm -hmm. uh, the, as in no time off yeah. They don't get a time off. There's pressure coming at them from every side. And for some student athletes coming in, it could be their family. You know, Correct. you you have to be successful. You have to perform so that you can bring in that added revenue. Uh, it, we put them in a position of breadwinner uh, for some percentage of kids to be a breadwinner at a young age, but they should have more time to themselves to explore, to meet people to decide what they like. They're, I mean, they're still 19. That's right. That's and an they age where you're trying to figure out who you are. And they right. are 19 in 1979, 1989. And I think we're putting way too much pressure. Uh, the incidence of mental health issues, uh, suicidal ideation, those mm. sorts of things are increasing. It's because we're, we're asking too much of them. Yeah, I agree. How about the transfer portal? Now, <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, when a young man or young woman signed with an institution and a coach jumps ship, they're locked in right there. I know there were there were many for a long time that thought there's got to be some way to navigate that and allow some kids some freedom. What's been your view of that? Well, you know, coaches preach. I preach all the time commitment. You you've got to stay committed, committed to the values of our program, and you know, the, it started with coaches not living up to their commitment. They were jumping ship before the players jumped ship. You know, coaches in football who left prior to the bowl game, whether they're a coordinator, you know, well, it, you can always explain it away. I got a job offer. Right. Well, we have a bowl game. I thought we were committed. We got a bowl we're a game family. in January. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. What happened to a commitment? <laughs> so you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. And so I blame the coaches for this because they, they, they preach commitment. We all preach commitment. And, and then don't live up to our own commitments. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't like leaving one program. When I left Cincinnati to come here, I had to tell 14 players, 
that, that I'm not living up to my commitment. Right. And they're like, all that BS she told us, now she's <laughs> out there to the Rocky Mountains. You know, I didn't, that's why I didn't want to do it again. So, you know, you have to do it maybe, you know, once or twice in your career. But, but as, as it relates to the transfer portal, um, I, I don't think we're teaching kids how resilience, how to get through adversity. The grass is greener on the other side. If I go over to this school, yep. I'm not going to have to do, she makes me up at 6 a.m. and do that, or she makes me do this drill and it's a stupid drill. You know, uh, well, they all, every kid whines. They all whine. Exactly. We you all know? do. Yeah. yeah. And what you're teaching them is, yeah, it's a dumb drill, but if I tell you to do the drill, I, it, you know, it's because I have a reason. So right. just trust me on this. That drill's going to help you. Da, da, da. You know, they, they never get through that. They're like, I'm out of here, I'm going over there. Some of these kids are transferring three times. Yeah, so Ridiculous. we do games and it, you know, it, it's a frequent thing. I'm doing a ball game and somebody's been at three, four schools by this point in time. And, and, and the part of it I really don't like, I don't like it, a lot of things I don't like, but you know, you get to do that in old, old age, but um, is in conference, you know, within Transfer, the conference, yeah. because they all recruit the same kids, they recruit the same footprint. Now you're going through the handshake line and you see an assistant coach stop. And oh, they're, yes. they're, they're chit-chatting up the kid that they lost to that school. Yep. They don't, you know, you know. And it's happening. The give me a call if things don't go well. Right. You've and got my number. It's and happening the other direction where kids are saying to coaches, hey, coach, I'd be interested. And so I've yep. had many coaches tell me that kids are approaching them in handshake lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And no coach is going to say, hey, you need to honor your commitment. They're going to say they say that, yep. but they don't say that. You know, they go, you know, Here, you got my number. And it depends so, how good the player is, right? Right, <laughs> right. So I think I think there's a lot of familiarity inside conferences. In the transferring inside the conference, it feels, uh, yeah, you always got to be vigilant, and that's why the SWA position is so important that you have a strong person in that role who's not afraid. Yeah. yeah. Well, she did a phenomenal job in that role here at the University of Colorado as a senior women's administrator. Always great to see. We miss seeing around the hallways of Champion Center. <laughs> I miss being there. <laughs> the great Seal Berry joining us here today as we uh, talk about the 50th anniversary of Title IX. In fact, that fact, this is going to be a celebration all throughout the upcoming sports season, all through the summer, into the fall, and the end of the spring here at the University of Colorado. I'm voice of the bus, Mark Johnson. Thanks for joining us this time on the Buffs Insider.